recognize that these systems of oppression are linked. As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. And so with that, I will have uh, Senator Jeff Hayden say a few words. Compromise has brought us here. Compromise has brought the kind of oppressive system that, that allows for someone like George Floyd to get the life stuffled out of him for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So what the question should be that you should ask the Senate Republicans and even our Senate counterpart in, in Congress is to say, how come you are not negotiating with them? How come you are not listening to the voices that have been marginalized for decades and centuries in this country? How come you are not listening to the cries of the mothers and the fathers in our communities? How come you are not listening to the people who are telling you that we don't feel like our lives matter equally in this country? Because when you have legislators who are living every single day in the midst of communities that are constantly feeling pain, being told by legislators who have no idea, not a single idea, not because they've lived through it or because they represent people living through it, constantly telling them what should be and what can be acceptable treatment for themselves and for the communities that they represent. And I just think that is really the, the most emblematic part of this conversation. And it's truly why we continue to have a system that isn't equal for us. When we saw the statue of um, Columbus come down, there was conversations happening about how other people felt. And nothing was being amplified by the people who took it down, who saw it as a symbol of oppression for themselves. And so when do we as a society uplift and uphold the pain and the struggles of the people who are actually living through a system that doesn't recognize them as equal, a system that doesn't recognize the systematic trauma that they have been through, a system that doesn't recognize the continued pain and invisibility and lack of care that they feel every single day. There are camps and people are being concentrated. This is very simple. I don't even know why this is a controversial thing for her to say. We have to uh, really truthfully speak about what's taking place. And this is why it's really important for us to abolish ICE and make sure that we have an agency that is accountable to the people that is dealing with the situation in a humane way. Member of Congress Omar has just expressed her support for Ocasio-Cortez's remarks about those who enter our country 
that they are in concentration camps ever again happened to the six million of our brothers and sisters those concentration camps omar thinks it's perfectly fine i mean listening to her i i don't know is she stupid is she an idiot is she totally ignorant it's about well you concentrate so you concentrate what is it a comedy act on her part oh my god what is wrong with this woman it's hard to believe that she is a member of congress as a democrat i am embarrassed by her behavior by her comments by how inarticulate she is how idiotic so i wonder whether omar ocasio cortez i bet you they have never read a book on the holocaust I wish a reporter somewhere would ask them, what book have you read about the Holocaust? I guarantee you the answer is blah, 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 blah. It's insane. It's crazy. And by the way, it causes amazing pain for survivors all over the country. It's sticking a knife into them, those who went through the Holocaust and saw their parents go straight to the gas chambers, saw brothers and sisters be murdered, worked to death, and so on. The pain that has cost the survivors, you can't even imagine. And Omar thinks, well, concentration, you concentrate people. What an, oh my God, an idiot. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border. And that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. My mother's mother went straight to the gas chamber in the concentration camp. Members of her family were tortured, worked to death. The brutality of what never again and concentration camps are all about. The audacity, the chutzpah, the ignorance of Ocasio-Cortez to mention never again concentration camps when we're talking about immigrants coming into this country. My God, how many immigrants have been gassed? How many immigrants have been worked to death? How many immigrants have been experimented on by doctors? Ocasio-Cortez, Shame on you long clips from the president's recent address at Mount Rushmore. It may have been the best speech Donald Trump has ever given. It was succinct and clear, and it was true. And for all of those reasons, the Democratic Party and its many minions absolutely hated it. They denounced the speech, and this may not come as a complete surprise to you, as, quote, racist. Now, that's a slur long divorced from any actual meaning. But we should tell you that as a factual matter, it's a lie. There was nothing even conceivably racist about Trump's speech. Go watch it for yourself. There's not a racist word or idea in the whole thing. The only time Trump even brought up the Civil War was to praise Abraham Lincoln, who, thank God, won it. He never mentioned the Confederacy or anyone in the Confederacy. Instead, Trump praised unabashed American heroes like George Washington, Clara Barton, the Wright brothers, Jackie Robinson. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois watched Trump's speech, or claimed she did, her summary of it, quote, he spent all his time talking about dead traitors. George Washington, Clara Barton, Jackie Robinson, they are all, according to Tammy Duckworth, dead traitors. Pretty shocking. In case you think we're being unfair here, in the same interview, Senator Duckworth was asked if we should tear down statues to George Washington. Sure, she responded, let's talk about it. We played that tape for you last night, and we noted how grotesque it was. Only someone who hates the country 
would suggest ripping down monuments to its founder. Apparently, Tammy Duckworth saw what we said. She didn't disagree with it exactly. Instead, she questioned our right to criticize her at all, since she was once injured while serving in the Illinois Army National Guard. That's what passes for an argument in modern identity politics. They don't address the points that you make. They question your right to make them at all. The irony, of course, is that George Washington himself, the dead traitor Tammy Duckworth has such contempt for, also served in the military. Washington spent most of his adult life under arms. He fought in two wars. At one point during the winter of 1777, Washington lost almost a quarter of his entire army to cold and malnutrition. So George Washington paid his dues. He was, as we might say today, a combat veteran. And by the way, Washington also created the country we live in. George Washington was a genuinely great man. But to morons like Tammy Duckworth, Washington is just some old white guy who needs to be erased. Let's tear down his statues, rename our capital city Sharpton or Mandela, and let the revolution continue. But hold on, not so fast. Changes that profound deserve a debate. Not some fake national conversation where they scream commands at you and you get to obey, but a vigorous reasoned exchange between adults. We wanted to have an exchange like that with Tammy Duckworth tonight. So we called her office and we invited her on the show. Her flack informed us that before even considering our request, we must first issue a public apology for criticizing Tammy Duckworth. In other words, I will not debate you until first you admit you're completely wrong. Keep in mind, Tammy Duckworth is not a child, at least not technically. She is a sitting United States senator who is often described as a hero. Yet Duckworth is too afraid to defend her own statements on a cable TV show. What a coward. Tammy Duckworth is also a fraud. Five years ago, while she was a member of Congress, whistleblowers from a VA hospital in Illinois approached Duckworth to report the widespread mistreatment of sick veterans. Remember that story? The whistleblowers met with Tammy Duckworth three times. She refused to help them. According to a cardiologist who attended those meetings, Duckworth dismissed the systemic cruelty inflicted on dying veterans by saying that, quote, that's just how it is at the VA. The whistleblowers were horrified by her response. Ultimately, in frustration, they took their story to the media and it became a national scandal. This is the person lecturing the rest of us about her moral authority as a veteran. Spare us. Tammy Duckworth is a callous hack who ignored the suffering of actual veterans when it actually mattered. She has no moral authority. She is just a politician like the rest of them. She works for us. This is a democracy. She has an obligation to explain herself and answer our questions. And our first question would be, how can you lead a country you despise? And that's not something we would ask only to Tammy Duckworth, by the way. Hating America is a major theme in the Democratic Party right now. It's everywhere. Turn on the TV. Here's Congresswoman Ilhan Omar just today. And if anyone should love America, it's Ilhan Omar. This country rescued her from a squalid Kenyan refugee camp and made her a national figure, quite an ascent. But Ilhan Omar is not grateful. She hates us for it. Watch Omar tell us it is time to dismantle our country. As long as our economy and political systems prioritize profit without considering who is profiting, who is being shut out, we will perpetuate this inequality. So we cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. Dismantle the American economy and the American system of government. 
institutions that generations of Americans built over hundreds of years. Tear them down, say Ilhan Omar and Tammy Duckworth and so many others on the left. We don't like them. We hate this country. We want a new country. The problem is there are many of us here who do like this country. We live here. We don't want to destroy it. We have every right to fight to preserve our nation and our heritage and our culture. And when vandals like Tammy Duckworth and Ilhan Omar tell us that we're not allowed to question their patriotism, even as they scream about how horrible America is, we have every right to laugh in their faces. And we should. Thank you, Ro. Um, I feel ill a little bit. Um, because of, of everything that is taking place. And I think every time I hear about, com I hear of conversations around war, I find my, myself um, being stricken with uh, PTSD. Um, and I, I find peace knowing that I, I serve um, with great advocates for, for peace and, uh, and people who have shown courage against war. In 1946, um, shortly after the United Nations was established with the goal of preventing future armed conflict, Albert Einstein wrote a letter to his congressman. He said, quote, you cannot simultaneously prevent and prepare for war. He said, the very prevention of war requires more faith, courage, and resolution than are needed to prepare for war. We owe it to the American people to prevent war and not prepare for more war. This is what is needed to keep our country safe. Today, our president is failing to heed the warnings of Einstein. Since he got into office, the President of the United States has been goading Iran into war. First, he canceled our best shot at avoiding armed conflict, the Iran nuclear deal. Then he announced crippling sanctions to starve the innocent people of Iran. And whether he publicly says he wants nothing to do with wars, or that he wants to end endless wars, we know that his actions are contradictory to his statements because every single person he surrounded himself with has been itching to go to war with Iran. And this is a man who, ha who is both an arsonist and a fireman. He starts a crisis then he wants to create the appearance of wanting to solve it. He's done that here. Our ability to fight ISIS has also been eroded because of the suspension of the Iran nuclear deal. The occupant of the White House has not done a single thing to stabilize the region. He has done everything to create more tension. We are no more safer today than we were yesterday. There are basic questions uh, that still exist after we went into our briefing. Did the intelligence support 
an imminent attack. As you've heard from my colleagues, we did not get a clear answer to that. Did the elimination of Soleimani eliminate the threat? We still have not heard a clear answer to that. Did we take precautions to make sure American troops and personnel on the ground were protected before carrying out this attack? We still don't have a clear answer. Public record has said that we've asked them to evacuate after the action was taken. In what authority were we able to execute and prosecute this attack. It is clear from this briefing and what we have heard from this administration that this attack was motivated by blind ideology and not facts. We know that previous administrations did a cross-benefit analysis on whether to assassinate Soleimani and their assessment was that he wasn't worth the trouble. That, he, we, that has been the assessment of the Israelis and other allies, as we've learned. Many have wanted the opportunity to take him out and known he is a malicious actor. So what made this different? That it didn't require clear deliberation of what was going to be the consequence and not allow for a notification and consultation uh, with Congress. Why don't we have any of these clear answers? We hope the American people will continue to ask for answers. Instead, we're hearing spin, the same spin that led us into the Iraq war. So you might have noticed that the media asks for a question and moves on without getting a clear answer from the administration. And what we hope is that the American people will not stop asking questions until they have clear answers. We caution against war because our allegiance to this country and, it's, and our oath to protect it. Sending teenagers to die or return with lifelong wounds, seen and unseen, is not what uh, it is to carry out our oath. Risking a regional or even global war is not what it means to carry out our oath to protect the American people. I always say war does not have a reset button. Oftentimes, people deal with oppressive, regressive, dangerous leaders. War is never the answer to saving more lives. War destroys lives. It takes away futures and it destroys generations. I know this. I've learned that lesson at the young age of eight. And many of the people in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and around the world also know this lesson. The world is asking us to act differently this time. 
and it's our duty to show up and make sure. And so it was, it was the, the thing that was interesting in the class was every time the, the, the professor said Al-Qaeda, he sort of like his shoulders yeah. went up and you know. Yeah, he he's in command like, here. Al-Qaeda, you know, hospital. He's an expert. <laughs> Um, I remember um, when I was in college, I took uh, a terrorism class. And is that a such thing? Yeah, there was. So you go. Was, uh, there is a lab for that. There was. A, there was a class that you. <laughs> Do you go to lab? No, we, we, field we, trip we learned the, the, the ideology of. I'm glad um, you do that. <laughs> and so it was. It was the the thing that was interesting in the class was every time the 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 professor said al qaeda he sort of like his shoulders yeah. went up and you know yeah, he's in command like, yeah. al qaeda you know hospital he's an expert and it, was, <laughs> and it was you know as what's his it, name as, what about his oh, name we on are not, we, we are not saying his name uh, yeah. you, you probably get to see him on on CNN. Well, yeah, of know. course. I love those guys. But you know, but 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 it is it is that you don't say America with an yeah. intensity. You yeah. don't say England with yeah. an intensity. You yeah. know, you don't you don't say um, the army with an intensity. Qaeda. <laughs> but you say these these names because you you want that that word to carry weight. You want it to leave something with, yeah, with it has a cultural meaning not just exactly meaning. so it's it's you know it's, it's said with a deeper voice with so so yes it is but when a non-white commit a violence or misbehave we condemn the whole culture mm -hmm. but yeah, when a white condemned we just go to psychoanalysis that he were he didn't have a girlfriend when he was growing up you know? <laughs> was like he he's not capable of committing violence because he's white yeah so so that that that's an interesting point when you have an individual inside of um a, in, a, in a western society that goes on and does commit like mass murder we have mass shootings that yeah. happen constantly yeah. here we investigate that person and yeah. what has driven them to commit that act yeah. when an act is committed by these muslim you know, terrorist. What we investigate is that whole community. We yeah. investigate that whole faith. We investigate that whole society. And everyone is supposed to have some answer to why these people are doing this. When it is those individuals that people need to be investigating, it is their lives that needs to be under the microscope, not the lives of the rest of the community. Because I am not part of Al Shabaab. I do not um, participate. Totally surprised. <laughs> I do not you, participate. You are a Shabab. Well, Shabab is young. Is young. We cannot stop at criminal justice system. We must begin the work of dismantling the whole system of oppression wherever we find it. It is true that we are tired. It is true that we are in enormous pain. It is true that people are pouring in to the streets with fists up, but the spirit's not broken. And I witnessed that last night as I attended the fourth year anniversary um, of the death um, of Philandro Castillo. The visual that the community held for him in reminder of how valued and important his life was to the enormity 
of the example it shows that no matter how perfect you are, how much you follow your training and your instructions from your parents in interacting with the police, that you will still have bullets shot into you and your life taken. And so I just wanted to quickly recognize um, a voice that has been fighting to keep the memory of Flander Castile alive and the call to justice and one that truly assures that we recognize, as he said last night, that our intelligence, our voice, and our votes combined together can create transformative change for black people in this country. And that's John Thompson. And so with that, we will take a um, few questions if you all have, or if my other colleagues want to add anything. Senator, you talk about progress being made toward a, a, a law enforcement reform bill. What's going on with the special sessions approaching? It seems like you're putting a lot of pressure on the Republican colleagues. Uh, what's happening? Um, so I, I, will, I will let uh, Jeff um, and, and Rena answer this question, but I think that is precisely why we are here today. Um, it is to be part of that increased pressure. Um, we represent the voices of those who feel marginalized in this lawmaking process. And so we want to make sure that we are translating everything that is happening to the streets um, to meaningful legislation. Uh, and as our colleagues on the other side of the aisle continue to fight us, we are going to continue to mount pressure because time is up on having that transformative change. Thank you, Chair. Um, Representative O'Neill, um, I'm just wondering, are there, I, as a union member for a long time, and I've also gotten an opportunity to work in, in the private sector, um, and I just, I don't, I'm, I'm curious to know if, if you know of any employer that has um, a provision where they decrease pay for employees. I'm just, I, I find that a little um, strange. And so I just wanted to know where that thought comes from. And if, you know, if, if, if you know where, um, an employer gets, an employee gets their pay decreased. Representative O'Neill. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, well, I was a business owner. Uh, I recently sold my share, so I don't own it anymore, but there are plenty of businesses out there, especially those that depend on employees' productivity, like I was in the trades. So I owned a company that was a tile setting company. And if we didn't get out there and do the work, and if I didn't have highly productive employees, they were paid based on their productivity. So if they, um, if they had issues, it is very possible that their pay would reflect those issues. If they were on um, probation for something, for some sort of violation, that could be coordinated with 
a pay reduction. It's something that businesses do uh, all the time, um, and it could be the step before someone is actually fired. So uh, it's it's an important thing, and it's it's it gets people's attention. You know, when they see it in their paycheck that their performance does not meet the standard. Representative Omar. I, I, Hudson, I think might. Did you have something, Madam Chair? Mr. Hudson, was there a question for Mr. Hudson? No, I think he was saying that he wanted to add something, so I didn't know if he had something to add. Mr. Hudson, the, is, is there a response to the question? Do you have a response to that question, Madam Chair? Yes, ma'am. That you aren't aware of any businesses that uh, decrease pay, because that was the question, Madam Chair. I think what Chair O'Neill perhaps could be referring to, there are some instances where the pay structure is different. So for an example, she had indicated that she had come out of the towel industry. I'm not sure if these were commissioned employees who may have been on like an 80-20 split. In that instance, there is a situation where a pay might be reduced. Or if we have a supervisor who perhaps had a performance improvement issue, or a behavioral concern, and we demoted this supervisor. That is an instance where pay might be decreased. But just an employee uh, who has not been under some sort of performance and program, having their pay reduced, I've never heard of that. Oh, Mr. Uh, Hudson, I think Representative Neal knows exactly what she says. And I think we've had a, a little conversation back here when the question was asked. I know Representative Uglim, do you want to speak to that point? Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, Representative Omar, um, if you happen to be a salesman in this world, uh, and you can be selling cars, you could be selling siding, uh, you could be selling just about anything, and you are paid on commission. So if you don't sell anything, you don't make anything. So uh, you can have good years, you can have bad years. Uh, probably really one of the best examples is a real estate agent. So uh, it's the idea that um, uh, people can, can make less money year to year, not to mention all the bonus situations that are out there in industry. Um, it happens, it happens a lot. Uh, it doesn't necessarily happen, you know, here in the public sector, but, but it's pervasive and very, very common in the private sector. Thank you. And I'd like um, to add that in the private sector as well, people, if they are not performing at their job, get demoted, and with that demotion comes a pay cut. And that's not even related to being in a commission position, that's just in a regular position as well. Representative yeah. Omar. Um, I think a, a commissioned position is very different than what we are discussing today. Um, and I- Representative Omar, I mentioned the fact that it's not just limited to commission, it's also for anybody that is demoted. So you can be in a regular job, not part of a commission situation, but if you're failing to perform, you'll get demoted and then you get a pay cut with it. So I just wanna make sure that that's clear. So I know Representative O'Neill has yeah. that experience having owned a business and so I think she was speaking to that. Is that anti-Semitism has no place in the United States Congress. And Congressman Omar is terrible what she said. And I think she should either resign from Congress or she should certainly resign from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. What she said is so deep-seated in her heart that her lame 
apology, and that's what it was. It was lame, and she didn't mean a word of it. Uh, was just not appropriate. I think she should resign from Congress, frankly. But at a minimum, she shouldn't be on committees, certainly that committee. And with that, uh, we're going to have a meeting. Our cabinet is doing really well, I tell you. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Kelly, included in the president's budget is a provision that says, quote, the Secretary of Homeland Security may condition a grant or cooperative agreement awarded by the Department of Homeland Security to a state or political subdivision of a state for a purpose related to immigration, national security, law enforcement, or preventing, preparing for, or protecting against or responding to acts of terrorism. Specifically, the budget authorizes the secretary to condition grants on compliance with any lawful request by DHS to detain an alien for a period not to exceed 48 hours. Are you familiar with that? I'm fairly familiar with it, yes. I'm sorry? Fairly familiar with it, yes. Grants that are subject to new conditions would include the Urban Area Security Initiative, a DHS grant that provided California last year with $124 million to help urban areas prevent, mitigate, and respond to acts of terrorism. This grant supports more than 100 incorporated jurisdictions in 12 counties in the Bay Area of California alone. Um, it, it supports them to buy equipment, enhance systems, and conduct trainings so that localities can prevent, mitigate, and respond to acts of terrorism. Are you aware of that? That's a good thing. Another DHS grant is the State Homeland Security Grant Program that provided California $60.2 million last year to support state, local, and tribal efforts to prevent terrorism um, and to prepare the nation for threats and hazards that pose the greatest risk to security in the United States. Is that correct? Uh, I wish I had the same document I could read from as you do. Are, are you familiar with this grant program in your department? I'm familiar with the grant program. And are you aware that there are a number of federal courts that have imposed civil liability on local governments for complying with ICE detainer orders that were not supported by probable cause? Can you answer I, the question? Am I aware of that? Yes. I am. Um, and in order then to comply with a 48-hour ICE detainer made with no probable cause, wouldn't that force the jurisdiction to choose whether to comply with a federal court ruling or um, forfeit vital public safety funds that are administered by your department? I'm not a lawyer, but I think that uh, federal law is federal law, is state law is state law, and if, if uh, you know, we have a different view of uh, the impact of some of the state rulings, but I'm not... Well, imagine, sir, if you will, uh, that you were a local law enforcement leader presented with a choice of either uh, complying with federal law that means that you may expose your department and your jurisdiction to civil liability or forfeiting DHS funds that are designed and intended to help you fight terrorism at a local level. Wouldn't you agree that puts those law enforcement leaders in a, it's almost a Hobson choice, Hobson choice? Well, Senator, what, how are they supposed to choose? Had you not cut me off, I would have said the same thing you just said. Probably not as eloquently, but I'd have said the same thing you said. I appreciate the fix they're in. I appreciate that they get their legal advice from, uh, from, the, from the state and locals. Uh, and uh, below the radar, we work with uh, every police and sheriff department in this country to the degree that they can and are comfortable with. Secretary Kelly, what do you mean below the radar? They have two choices and they Talk are accountable. The Excuse me, sir. They are accountable. Yeah to their jurisdiction, to the bodies that may have appointed or elected them. Right. 
and they have to make choices. What do you mean below the radar? We talk to them on the telephone. And, and what are you instructing them to do when presented with those two choices? And we tell them to uh, whatever they can do within the law, the interpretation, uh, we're willing to work with them. So, so are you aware that there are you're, local you're law really enforcement... Do finish once before you interrupt me? Sir, I, with all due respect. With all due respect, Senator. Are you instructing local law enforcement leaders that they can uh, overlook a DHS detainer request so they're not exposed to criminal liability? We talk to them about whatever they're comfortable with, whatever they think they can do within the interpretation uh, of their local um, attorneys general, as an example, or so, local uh, lawyers. So when they're, where, when they're instructed, once, excuse Senator, me, I, I'm asking the questions. But I'm trying to answer the question. When they are, when they tell you, as I know, local police officers, uh, police chiefs are being told that it would expose their municipality to civil liability if they comply with the detainer request. Are you telling them that you will not withhold the DHS federal funding that they rely on? Okay, before I start to answer, will you let me finish? If it's responsive to the question, of course. We talk to them on the phone and tell them whatever they're comfortable with, whatever they can do within the interpretation of their local uh, lawyers or, or uh, uh, legal advisors, we'll work with them. So are you willing to then not withhold federal funding when police chiefs tell you that they cannot comply with the detainer request because they've been told by their lawyer that they will expose their jurisdiction or their department to civil liability? I'm willing to work with them in any way I can within the law, federal and local law. You know, something really remarkable is happening in the United States of America. And while, yes, we do live under the Trump administration and while we have rising fascism in America, we also have a rise in women of color who are gaining places of power. We are taking the mics and pushing forth Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a young Puerto Rican woman, Nayana Presley, Ilhan Omar, a Somali refugee who literally fled persecution and civil war and watching Rashida Tlaib, our first Palestinian woman in Congress. It is a truly inspiring. And what we are seeing in the States is that the most courageous voices, the most consistent voices in America are women, and in fact, women of color. And I'm very proud of that. And there is a quote by abolitionist named Harriet Beecher Stowe. She said, sometimes we're gonna find ourselves in a really tight place and we're gonna feel like the whole world is against us. But it's actually in that space that you have to stay because that is the space where the tide is turning. These women are staying steadfast, even though so many factors and groups are against them because the conversation is shifting. I mean, the Women's March was a pivotal, critical moment in this administration's lifetime. If it was not for the Women's March, which is the largest single day demonstration in U.S. history, we would not have had 20,000 women run for political office across the country on every level of government. We would not have put 114 women in Congress. The largest new class in the Congress of the United States of America are women. And that is how Alexandria and Rashida and Ilhan and Ayanna Presley and many other women have gotten into the Congress. And it is because of the women's movement in America and because of the leadership of women, the Democratic Party was able to take the House back from the Republicans. We are going to win back that White House and make sure that it works for all the American people. We cannot beat Trump from the center. What you need to do in the United States of America is be part of a movement. So for me, of course, I support Bernie Sanders. I support free public college university. I support my country to give everybody access to health care. I want to live in a country where I don't have to work two, three jobs so that I can support my family. For once, we will center the most marginalized people because when you center and uplift 
the most broken people in your country, it uplifts all of us in our country. And I believe wholeheartedly that Bernie Sanders has been the most consistent politician. And I hope to see a Bernie administration. You know what? I hope to see a Bernie and Warren administration. That is my true dream. And that would be potentially a beacon of hope for the rest of the world to see the United States of America defeat fascism and white nationalism. And I believe in the American people. I believe in my people. I believe that my people in America just want to live with dignity. They want to have the basic necessities. They all love their children. They all love their families. They all want to be safe. And I know that I share that with them, even though our government is trying to separate us. You cannot fight one form of racism without fighting other forms of racism and bigotry. So we cannot combat anti-black racism without also combating anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, sexism. The Trump administration is fueled by white nationalists and white supremacists who are extremely anti-Semitic. We will not allow for the persecution of the Jewish people on our watch in the United States of America. Because when the Jewish people are able to be persecuted, that means the Muslims will be persecuted. And when the Muslims will be persecuted in America, that means the Jewish people will be persecuted. So our solidarity is actually our safety. Our unity is going to protect all of us. I don't work to help just the Jewish people or just immigrants or refugees or Muslims. I believe that my liberation is bound up with all these groups. And if there's one group in my country that is not free, I am not fully free if others are not free. The most important thing that any of us can do in the face of Islamophobia or any form of bigotry is we have to speak up about it. Do not be a silent bystander. Oftentimes we see things around us and we don't say anything. And when you don't say anything, we allow these things to escalate to the point where they become a human atrocity. And what I always ask people is never be a bystander and never be part of the silent majority. And my commitment, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to save the world. I'm not going to potentially have the biggest impact. But what I will be able to say generations from now is that I was not part of the silent majority, that I stood up in the face of oppression, in the face of adversity and opposition to say what is wrong is wrong, what is right is right. And that if that meant that I only protected one person, that is enough for me. And I'm pr I would be proud to say that I was able to do that. Early Hanukkah to all of you. Your 2020 platform calling for every public official to commit to defunding the occupation in Palestine is one that I can support very strongly. This is gross. Why can't she just wish us happy Hanukkah? Would she say happy Ramadan to all the Muslims fighting the Islamic occupation of Mecca? Or happy Christmas to all the Catholics fighting the Catholic occupation of the Vatican? No, she'd just say happy Ramadan or happy Christmas. Yet here she is, hijacking a Jewish festival to attack Jews. And here's the irony of it all. Hanukkah actually celebrates Jews fighting off a foreign army that was occupying Judea. Where's Judea, you might ask? Well, it made up most of the West Bank. And when the Romans conquered Judea from the Jews, they renamed it to erase its Jewish roots. Places like Shechem, became Neapolis, and the wider region, including Judea, became Syria-Palestina, which leads us back to Rashida. It's most likely Rashida belongs to the Harb tribe from Arabia, hence her maiden name, Harbi. When the Islamic armies came from Arabia and conquered Israel, they adopted the Roman names. Neapolis became Nablus, Syria-Palestina became Palestine. Did you catch that? Rashida celebrating Jewish independence in Judea by describing the Jews that live there as occupiers. If she finds Jews living in the West Bank so offensive, it's probably best to skip the Hanukkah message. Thanks for watching. Make sure that you follow us on all of our social medias. I have a message for Jeff Bezos and his class. If you attempt again to overturn the Amazon tax, Working people will go all out in the thousands to defeat you.
up there. Because you see, we are fighting for far more than this tax. We are preparing the ground for a different kind of society. And if you, Jeff Bezos, want to drive that process forward by lashing out against us in our modest demands, then so be it. Because we are coming for you and your rotten system. We are coming to dismantle this deeply oppressive, racist, sexist, violent, utterly bankrupt system of capitalism, this police state. We cannot and will not stop until we overthrow it and replace it with a world based instead on solidarity, genuine democracy, and equality, a socialist world. Thank you. This is what the American people are sick and tired of. They're literally just sick of it. We can disagree and we're going to disagree. Dean and I disagree. The speaker and I disagree on issues, but we also agree. I was proud to join the speaker in January, along with Dean and another Democrat, three Republicans and an independent. You can guess who the independent was. Why? To write an op-ed in the Washington Post saying, hold on here. Maybe we should rethink 20-year-old authorizations of force. Now, do I have all the answers to what we should do in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Iran? I do not. It's okay to say that, by the way. It's okay to say you don't have all the answers. But we got together to say maybe, just maybe, we should rethink 20-year-old authorizations of force when there are men and women who are now enlisting who weren't alive when we passed them. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had a 12-tour veteran, I think a Marine, who killed himself. 12 tours, ladies and gentlemen. What are we doing? Why aren't we having a debate about that? And with all due respect to some of my friends on this side of the aisle, endless wars is not an answer. Neither is allowing bad actors to run amok around the world against our national security interests or that of our allies. So why must it always be when we get to budget time, well, we got to have more money, we're going to keep defense, we're going to keep things going, we're going to have OCO, we're going to do this, we're going to spend more money, keep the wars going, whatever DOD wants. And why is it on the other side of the aisle too often? Well. Endless amount of dollars for non-defense discretionary spending, but whatever, we don't care about $26 trillion of debt. Let's just pass a bill. Let's just get it done so we can do something. And you get what you want, you get what you want, we spend another extra trillion dollars. By the way, trillion dollars sounds kind of quaint, doesn't the gentleman from Arizona? Trillion dollars sounds kind of quaint now. I don't even know where we are. Does anybody in this chamber have the first clue what our national deficit is gonna be this year? No, we don't have a clue because we are spending money hand over fist. Why? Because we're trying to deal with a pandemic that frankly, our own public actions and public governments are causing a hell of a lot of the very damage we're trying to bail out. State and local governments taking actions, which basically are tantamount to takings shutting down people's livelihoods and then they just walk away and shake their hands and they go well i guess the federal government will bail them out governors mayors sorry bars shut down sorry restaurants shut down 
Sorry, barbershop shut down. Sorry, live music venue shut down. Sorry, artist who has to sing in the live music venue, you're shut down. Sorry, churches, you can't worship. Madam Speaker, I mean, I'm sitting here in this chamber wondering what it's going to take for the House of Representatives to actually represent. We don't govern. That's not what we do in America. We represent. We each represent whatever we represent, 700, 800,000 people, depending on the district. And we're here to share their values and beliefs and reach to some point of actual responsible leadership and do our job. But I gotta say something here. The President of the United States, he draws a lot of fire. The President of the United States ran in 2016 on what? Build the wall, drain the swamp. And what does drain the swamp mean? I would tell you that whatever you think of the President, Drain the swamp means everything I'm just talking about and a thousand other things that are irritating the American people every single day about why this government and particularly this Congress can't do its job. Why bureaucrats stand in the way of what the people want, why judges make up the law, why Congress can't balance a budget. That's the swamp. The swamp represents the frustration of an American people who, while extremely willing to be, to have people come to this country with open arms, also want their border to be secure. They don't want cartels running the border. They don't want 900,000 people coming to our border, being apprehended and having to deal with it. They don't want cartels to abuse women and children on the journey. They don't want fentanyl pouring across our border. And that's the state of our border. And the President of the United States dared to say we should have a secure border, and what happened? Colleagues on the other side of the aisle went to the border and lied about the state of the border with respect to kids in cages and kids drinking out of toilets. I went there. My chief of staff went down there the week after. Claims were made about kids drinking out of toilets, and they were toilets that have water fountains attached to them. But this is the hyperbole that drives public opinion and gets out in social media and undermines the one thing that almost all Americans understand is critically important and that is to have border security where cartels don't run our border. That is not a controversial statement. But by the way, it's not just my colleagues on their side of the aisle. There's a whole lot of people on my side of the aisle who love to sit there at the Rio Grande and have a little sign that says no trespassing and then they wink, wink, nod, nod, and they over, over here, they have a help wanted sign. How about we have an honest conversation about what a secure border looks like? Why don't we sit down at a table and actually do that? I'm sick and tired of Republicans who 10 years ago were saying to those of us who thought we should have a secure border because we knew what was happening and we saw what the cartels were doing and we saw the horrors of human trafficking and we saw the dead bodies in deserts. And people in our own party were saying, well, Fences are a 19th century solution to 21st century problem. And now because it's a politically charged thing, the president's for it and it's become partisan. It's like, well, 
Yeah, we're all for it. When are we going to do our job, Republicans and Democrats, to do that? Secure the border of the United States. Not because we don't want to welcome immigrants, but because it's the responsible thing for a government to do. Why would we let the Reynosa faction of the Gulf Cartel run the border in the Rio Grande Valley, but that is precisely what we're doing? Why would we allow fentanyl to pour across the border? Why would we allow addicts in our country to have a constant supply coming through from Mexico across our border through Texas, through Arizona, through New Mexico, through California? Why would we do that? It defies all rationality. It makes no sense if that's what we do. And the American people are sick and tired of it. And giving credit where it's due, the President of the United States has tried to attack that problem. And he's met resistance from the swamp at every turn. He's met resistance from my Democratic colleagues, met resistance from bureaucrats at DHS, met resistance from bureaucrats throughout the administration when he's trying to do what the American people elected him to do. When we stand up saying we should defend the rule of law and stand beside law enforcement, what happens? The swamp pushes back, says, no, we can't do that. Heaven forbid we have federal law enforcement protecting a federal courthouse. Who would have thought? The swamp pushes back. Right now, we're facing the struggles that, are dealing, that we're dealing with with respect to the pandemic. I suspect that my friend from Arizona is here to talk a little bit about data about that. I could be wrong. I think I'm right. There's a lot of stuff that we should be looking at about this virus. It's a virus. It's not something you bottle up into a Tupperware container and put on the shelf. It's a virus. It's out. It's among us. It's in all 50 states. It's in every city and town. It's a virus. What are we going to do as a country to work through it? Cower in fear? Be afraid to actually look at the data? Be afraid to actually talk to doctors who might have an opposing or different view than... The news these days tends to be filled, and it's not often filled with the positive things that we ought to be celebrating together as Americans and the great accomplishments that we're achieving together. Uh, the great accomplishments we're achieving on a completely nonpartisan basis uh, and advancing our continued exploration. Uh, I think uh, Jim Bridenstine is a friend of mine, um, just thrilled at what he's doing with NASA, certainly thrilled to be seeing that we're returning to space vigorously uh, and that we're doing so actively. and. Uh, just appreciate their service. I love the rich tradition, the connection between NASA and our military. I know that you're a uh, veteran of our United States Navy. I thank you for your service and uh, appreciate your uh, joining me here tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Madam Speaker, I, I've come down here tonight uh, for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, a few weeks ago, um, a young lady, a 20-year-old named Rebecca Went, was campaigning in West Texas with another young fellow from Trinity University. And I represent Trinity University in San Antonio. And I got a call from my staff assistant, Jonah Went, 
that his sister had been killed um, an hour or two before uh, in a car accident in West Texas. And I will have more to say about Rebecca in the future, but uh, she was a bright star and a great um, defender of this country out working hard, volunteering as many of our young folks do on campaigns. She was a member of the Young Conservatives of Texas. She was majoring in history. Uh, and she and another young uh, fellow, again, I'll talk more about, Tyler was with her. They were out trying to make this country better. They were out trying to get someone they believed in elected. They were trying to change this country for the better by standing up for Texas, standing up for this country. And I want to celebrate her life. And again, I want to do it more in the future. But um, her brother, Jonah, uh, and his twin brother, Manfred, are very dear to me and worked hard on my campaign two years ago and are continuing to serve uh, in, in, uh, for this, serving this country as well as serving in support of me. Um, and I, I mentioned that because I, I do want to talk more about her another time. But I mentioned that because it got me to thinking about what this is all about, what we're doing. <clears throat> now, for those few people at home watching on C-SPAN, I'm here alone, mostly in the chamber, with the exception of the, the speaker, my friend from California. <clears throat> and I think about Rebecca, and I think about all of those young Americans out there working hard every day, trying to get someone elected or go fight for what they believe in. And that's what's what this is about. This is the people's house. This is the House of Representatives. It's really an unbelievable institution when you think about it, what it meant in the history of the world. I was at Independence Hall on July 2nd. I went up there because I wanted to be up there when I was watching so many of our monuments and so many of our statues under attack. And it's not the marble, it's not the mortar, it's not the bricks that matter. It was the ideals represented there. So I went up to Independence Hall and it was on July 2nd, which many will know was the day that we separated from the crown, the day of the actual vote. And the folks there were very kind to me. They were closed down because of what we're dealing with with the virus. They were very kind though and allowed me to go into Independence Hall. So I had the great blessing of being in Independence Hall on July 2nd, 244 years to the day of the vote. And then I got to go over to the other room, which is a different room, where the first five Congresses of the United States met. And that, of course, we have a history of then moving on in different capitals. We ended up here. And we've been in this chamber for, I don't know, I don't know the history as well as I should, but, you know, 100 years or something in this chamber. And this people's house, in my opinion, is failing the people of the United States. I'm going to say that again. The people's house, the 435 representatives that make up this half of Congress, one half of one third of the federal government, is failing the American people. It is failing the American people because we literally never debate. We literally never offer amendments and have any debate here on this floor. We are ruled by a handful of folks who make rooms in back chambers, drop bills on the floor of the House, and then demand we come down and vote on them. And by the way, that is both Democrats and Republicans. The People's House is supposed to be the People's House. We are supposed to actually debate, engage. You want to know why things are so broken? It's because if you even dare think about offering an amendment to a bill, you got to go to some rules committee to get blessed to be able to even have the ability to offer it. You'll get shut down a rules committee and then there's never any debate.
What kind of a people's house is that? I would posit that it is not one. We have so many issues right now that is tearing our country apart, that are tearing our country apart. 